Join us this week as Pastor Paul discusses the importance of not living a religious facade, but how to stay true to our beliefs by residing faithfully in God's character, in His faithfulness, righteousness, and truthfulness. Okay, you guys are going to ultimately want to go into Romans chapter 2. Welcome, glad you're here. Glad you're at Colton Community Church. I was listening to a podcast yesterday, um, and it was talking about the NBA. And in case you don't know it, in case you're not an NBA sports fan, the Raptors just beat the Milwaukee Bucks, and now it's going to be the Toronto Raptors versus the Golden State Warriors in the NBA Finals. How many of you guys are cheering those people on? This is not a basketball crowd, is it? Okay, we got one guy, one guy right there, okay. Uh, (laughs) No wonder, okay, football is fine. Basketball, what? Um, And (laughs) it's Trevon, there's like a bunch of blank stares. Basketball? Toronto, I didn't even know they had a basketball team. Um, For years, they've been working on refing because years ago, there was ideas that refing was kind of biased. And a guy in 2007 did a study, and he found out that it was biased. There was discrimination happening on the basketball court. And so a white ref, a bunch of black people on the team, he would call more fouls than a black ref refing the same teams, and, and they would call less fouls. And so what they did in 2007, they saw that study, and they, they started to train the refs, and so that there became an equality amongst refs. And so now refs call about the same amount of fouls, no matter what color skin they are or the player is. Also, what happened was that they developed this building in New Jersey. Um, it's a place where every game is telecast, is sent to this thing. It has 110 different television screens, and all games are going to it. And if you look at a television screen, you won't see the score on the bottom. You won't see bylines about anything. You won't even know what two teams are. It's the location of the game. And the job is for the refs watching these games to see the ref on the floor make a signal. And when he makes a signal, the refs in the booth in New Jersey, all of a sudden they start watching. Was his foot on the three-point line when he made the three-point shot? Did he, did it, the ball was released from his fingers by the time it, the buzzer went off? Was that a flagrant foul or was that incidental contact? And what they're finding out is the more that they do research, the more that they have those refs in New Jersey, the better the officiating comes. So, as a result, home field advantage is lessened because refs are no longer biased because they're from that area. Refs are now equal, and believe it or not, refing in football, I mean, in basketball, than it has ever gotten. Football's a different story, right? But in basketball, refing is very, very systemized. It's very equal. But you can't tell that to some of the prima donnas in basketball. There are some prima donnas. LeBron James is on video, and he is just jawing with a ref. He's just complaining about, a phone, complaining about a call that didn't get called, or sometimes he's complaining about a call that did get called. Steph Curry and the, um, the Golden State Warriors are notorious for getting after refs. Steph Curry has been ejected from a game. So has um, um, not only that, but a couple of other guys. Uh, out. A couple of other players have been kicked out of the game because they are jawing and calling into question whether or not the ref made the right call. Generally, though, it is only those people who are, if you will, franchise players. They're the ones complaining about the games and complaining about the calls. They're thinking that, you know, I'm a prima donna. They don't say that, but, but I deserve that extra step. I deserve that extra push. I, I, I got touched a little harder. And so they are the ones complaining mostly about the ref's calls. Well, the same 
is true in life, is that people who think that they have it all together, they tend to try to, if you will, sidestep the rules a little bit. Sidestep, those rules are good for them, but they're not good for me. So I took a picture of the corner of Rancho and Laurel. There was a study in Berkeley a couple of years ago that came out. The study in Berkeley said, you know what, people who drive nice cars tend to go through crosswalks with people crossing them more than people who drive clunker cars. And so what they did was they took some undergraduates, sacrificial lambs that they were, and they took the undergraduates and they said, okay, I want you to stand in the corner and I want you to start walking across the street when a car is coming. And then had other people kind of hiding in the bushes and they and they had to rate the car. What kind of car was it? A one would be a BMW and a Mercedes. Uh, a three would be like the Fords and Chevys and uh, cars that are in our parking lot today. I'm sorry, fives would be all the clunker cars that are in the parking lot today, right? If you got a clunker car, that's one. And what they found out was you all are very good. But people with clunker cars, every time a person stepped in the sidewalk, they stopped all the time. How many times did the people in the Mercedes and the BMW stop? They hardly, they, less than 45% of the time they stopped. The rules didn't apply to them. The rules of the prima donnas, they said, well, you know, those are good rules for those people, but I don't have to obey them. A couple of years ago, I was washing, getting my car washed. Actually, I was doing one of those hand car washes, and, and, and they had just put in, on Indiana and Riverside, just put in a new crosswalk. Kind of, when people wanted to cross the street instead of jaywalking, they put in a crosswalk. This is um, somewhat close to the Home Depot. And, and all of us, there were a couple of motorcycle cops hanging out on the corner, and then there was another police officer that was dressed in plain clothes, and his job was to walk across the street. And I'll tell you, it was, this was fun to watch. This was really fun to watch. And the guy in the plain clothes, he would see that it was clear, and he would start walking across the street. <laughs> cars would just blow right through the crosswalk. He was like halfway through, and, and cars would come through. And then the motorcycle cop would <laughs> go get him. I said, oh, this is fun to watch, right? See these guys, because sometimes you've been in a crosswalk, I've been in a crosswalk, where the cars don't stop, and we don't like that, do we? We don't like being run over by a car. You know, prima donnas, people who don't play by the rules, people who think the rules are good for them and not good for me, if you will, Paul's addressing somewhat of the same issue in Romans chapter 2. There's a group of people, group of people who, who one time they, they had the law, and now Jesus came and, and they accepted Jesus. We think that they probably became Christians at Pentecost when thousands of people came to Christ. Thousands of people were there for Pentecost. They were there for the Passover. And then they took the good news of Jesus. They took it home. But they also took with them all the rules and regulations that the law took with them. And, then, and they felt that they were a little bit better than, the, than everybody else. They felt like they were converted Jews who believed in Jesus, and yet they didn't have to play the same rules as the Gentiles, as the pagans had to play. So I'm going to read with you some of the passages, but you need to see that this is called a religious facade, facade, if you want to be specific, a religious facade. And, and the religious facade is, is okay, I, I'm a Christian, and I've got all these things, and, and they've got to obey all the rules, and I don't have to obey all the rules. And, and the thing about this religious facade, you like that instead of facade? Okay, religious facade, is that the world is watching. If you have your hand up, you're going to want to see the world is watching. The world is watching how we as Christians, we as Christians hold to our faith, not just hold to our faith, ask them to live while we live. The world is watching. The world is saying, do they and are they true to their word? Or do they say, don't do that, and yet they continue to do it? 
Don't, don't, don't do that, and yet as a Christian, we continue to do it. Is our walk the same as our talk? That's what we need to see. So on your handout, there are four points we're going to walk through. I'm going to say the point, walk through the passage, summarize it, point, summarize it. Ready? Number one, your reputation as a believer with outsiders matters. Your reputation among the non-Christians, your reputation in the world, your reputation with those people who do work in your house, those people who you meet at the cash register, those people who you interact with, those family members, your reputation, it matters to the outside world. Romans chapter 2, verse 17 says, Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, so Paul's addressing, he addressed the Gentiles earlier, Paul's addressing those people who called themselves a Jew. If you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast upon God, if you know his will and you approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide to the blind, a light to those in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, because you have the law embodied in the knowledge of truth, you then, you who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You preach against stealing. Do you steal? You say people shouldn't commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? You abhor idols. Do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? Uh, as it is written, God's name, listen to this, God's name is blasphemed among the non-Christian world, among the Gentiles, because of you. God's word is, God's name, God's holy name. And, and the Gentiles are saying, are saying, those people, they call themselves Christians, yet look, they, they steal and they tell me not to steal. They commit adultery and they tell me not to commit adultery. They come into our idols and this is what they, 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 Paul's reflecting. Some of them would go into the temple area knowing that those temples are nothing but, but wood and stone and they would take a golden temple and they would steal from that temple gold and they would use that gold and sell that gold, and they would rob those people of their worship of their, their God. They would rob them, even though in Deuteronomy that, that's an abomination to God. Is God's name blasphemed because of you? They're saying, is it do as I say, not do as I do? Is it, is it do as I say, not do as I do? Are you saying I'm superior? I know better? Oh, do not steal? Do not commit adultery. Oh, let me guide you out of the darkness. Let me, let, me, let me teach you who are foolish. Oh, your gods are horrible, horrible. Let me have the gold and so I can steal it and become rich with it. Is it do as I say, not as I do? I'm superior. I'm a guide for you. I, I, I teach you. And you can see Paul talking to these Jewish Christians who believe in Jesus Christ, Jewish Christians step above and beyond what all of the other Gentiles are. And yet, and yet, you know what? It's not do as I say, not as I do. It's, as Jesus would say, follow me. Follow my example as I follow Christ. And so, he says this, God's name is blaspheming among the Gentiles because of you. 
That's a horrible accusation. That, that's just Paul really, really taking and, and smacking him down and saying, look, the name of God is being trampled, and those people are saying bad things about God because of you. Turn the page a couple of centuries. What are non-Christians saying about the Christian faith that you... Non-Christians saying about the God that you worship, about Jesus Christ, because of you. Because of your testimony, because of what you say, because of what you do, and, and how you live, are non-Christians, are non-Christians cursing God because of your lack of integrity, your religious facade, or are non-Christians, or are non-Christians just attracted to Christ? And even though they're going to curse God, may they curse Him because of the good works. Look what Peter says in First Peter chapter three: "But in your hearts, revere, worship Christ as Lord." And, and this is our apologetics. Always be, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. Always be hope. Why do you have that joy? Patricia said this morning, hey, when I get up and sing, even if it's one song, all of a sudden my heart rejoices because of who he is. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone for the reason that you have hope. But you do it with gentleness and respect. And listen to what he says. You keep a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior. People are going to speak against you. It's, it's a battle we have. It's a spiritual battle. The enemy is always out to get you. But people are going to speak maliciously against you. But is it going to be for your good behavior, as Peter is saying, or is it going to be about your bad behavior, as Paul is saying to the Jews who are worshiping Jesus and, yet, and stealing? Don't commit adultery. Hey, she's cute. Hey, um, um, uh, I'll take that idol, please, and I'll convert it over and I'll rob your temple to make my living wealthier. May they speak of you, even though they're going to speak maliciously against you, may they speak about your good behavior. Number two, first part there. Number two, living with a mark, living with a mark of a believer requires personal responsibility. And so in the Jewish culture, over ever since the law of Moses, what happened would be a male son born, eight days after he was born, he was circumcised. And by being circumcised, that always gave them a mark that said they belong to this religious Jew. He was born a Jew. He was circumcised a Jew. And, and as a result, that became their identifying mark. And they would say, yes, you're circumcised. You belong in. No, you're an uncircumcised Philistine. You're a Gentile. You're outside. Those inside had the mark. Those outside did not have the mark. And so... For us, we need to live with the mark of a believer. There's a mark that everyone here receives. And it isn't the mark of circumcision, but Paul's going to use this as an illustration. Circumcision has value if you observe the law, he says. But if you break the law, you have become as those you wait, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. In other words, if you're living outside of the law, why are you calling yourself as living inside the law? So not circumcised. If they keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? Those people out there, if, if they're living according to the law that's written on their hearts, will they not be, be regarded as if they're keeping the law? Meanwhile, you have the mark, and you're living as though you're outside. What, what's going on here, he's saying? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you, who, even though you have the written code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. See, circumcision was an identifying mark. And, and, and it's saying that if you say you are a believer, then you need to act as a believer. There needs to be consistent. 
John, the apostle, says it like this. If you say you walk in the light, you need to live in the light. If you say you walk in the light and yet you'd walk in the darkness, you are a liar. And, and the truth of God is not in you. That's what John says in 1 John. Either walk in the light and be in the light, but, or walk in the darkness and be in the dark. But don't say that you're in the light when you're in the dark. Don't say that you have the mark when you don't have the mark. Don't say that you have the presence of God in you when you don't have the spirit. And don't, don't assume superiority. Don't assume that, hey, hey, I'm good. I'm better than everybody else because I've got the mark. No, circumcision was an identifying mark. It relates well to number three. Number three is you need to remove the heart of flesh. You need to have the heart of, if you will. Therefore, a person who is not a Jew, who is one outwardly, nor a circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God, by the Spirit, from God. Who do you want to praise you, God or other people? A Christian is one who is marked by the Spirit of God dwelling in them. It is not just because you have a tattoo on your hand, you go, oh, look, look, I'm a Christian. Or because you wear this nice golden chain, you go, oh, look, I'm a Christian. See, I've got this beautiful gold chain. Or maybe, oh, I was baptized one day. Look, I went in, I went out. Yay, I'm a Christian. Or, or maybe I sing in a band and, 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 and play musical instruments. I participate, I serve, I give, I'm a believer. And that's not what Paul's saying. Paul is saying it is something that happens on the inside of your heart. And for the first time in the gospel, in the epistle to the Romans, he uses the word spirit. He refers to the spirit living and dwelling in us. So I thought I would, I would help you guys see a little bit of where we're going to go in the next couple of months. A true believer is not about titles and gifting. A believer is not about how many gifts you had. It is not about who you are and what position you have. It is a person, it is a believer who Christian is one who has accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. And the Spirit of God has come upon them and, and seals them and perfects them and works with them and walks with them. We teach that, that everyone who has received the Holy Spirit, has received Jesus Christ as Lord, is identified with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does multiple things in our lives. One, it gives us gifts. The Holy Spirit has given everyone in this room at least one gift to use for His glory and His purpose in His church. One thing for us to use. And so He has gifted us. The other thing you can tell is people filled with the Holy Spirit are producing spiritual fruit. Every should be, if you're filled with the Spirit, producing spiritual fruit. It would be like me telling my, okay, I have a lemon tree in my backyard. And if I were to go to that lemon tree, actually I have two trees, I'll use both of them illustrations. I have a lemon tree and I have an orange tree. My orange tree is struggling for life. It has been struggling for life for four or five years. I, I personally have wanted to uproot that orange tree because it is not producing anything. Amy has saved that orange tree. Right? I, I've wanted to dig it out and throw it away because that orange tree, what is an orange tree supposed to do? Produce oranges, right? And, and this orange tree is not growing. It's not producing anything. It is simply taking up water and doing nothing with it. It is abundantly producing abundant amount of orange tree, lemons. It doesn't produce oranges. It produces lemons. Right? And, and can I tell that lemon tree, stop producing oranges? Oh, yeah. I, I can tell it don't produce oranges all the time, right? Yeah, it won't produce an orange. But if I tell that lemon tree, don't produce 
lemons. Is it going to do that? No, because the lemon tree is supposed to produce lemons. Now, I can not water that lemon tree. I can, I can, I can say, okay, I'm no longer going to water that lemon tree, and pretty soon that lemon tree will wither up and die. And maybe that's a good illustration for people being involved in fellowship, being involved in God's Word, and when they're not involved in God with the water and the presence of Holy Spirit, they kind of shrivel up, and therefore they don't produce as much fruit. But if you're involved and you're being saturated by the Word of God, you're being saturated by the fellowship, you're, you come to a Bible study, whether it's 9 o'clock at Rich's study or Larry's study or, or 10 o'clock at Amy's Ting or Wednesday night or Tuesday night, if you get involved and you start sharing your life, you're going to produce fruit. And then in Romans chapter 8, it says this, it says that people filled with the Spirit, you know what? You're in the power of the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit's power dwelling in you. Not only that, but, but you have been freed from the law of sin and death. No longer does sin over you. You are free, church. You, you don't have to live in a defeated, sin-filled life. You can live in a victorious life into which if you sin, you know that you've been forgiven. If you sin, you know you've been redeemed. All you've got to do is repent and come back to God, and you know He loves you. He longs for you. Um, um, your mind is set on the things that the Spirit desires. So, and so, so you want to know what the will of God is? Well, you're hanging out with God. He's dwelling in you. You know what God's will is for your life. You don't have to mysteriously ask, oh, what is the will of God? He reveals it to you. You are filled with life and peace as a Spirit-filled believer. You, you have put to death the deeds of the flesh. You're, you're children of God. You are helped in the weakness because of the Spirit. And, and you pray words of the Spirit. And those are all things we're going to look at and examine in a couple of months. But church of Jesus Christ, as a Spirit-filled believer in Jesus Christ, you need to produce fruit. You need to walk in the power and the presence of Jesus. And then number three, number four, I'm sorry, is you reside faithfully in the character of God. And so Paul mentions, and he writes all of that, and then, then he turns the chapter. Actually, we turn the chapter. The book doesn't have chapter breaks. And so number four is reside faithfully in the character of God. Paul continues, what advantage then is there of being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? In every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. You know, we have this text because millennia ago, there was a man named Abraham who left the Ur of the Chaldees and he faithfully followed God to a land he didn't know, never possessed. And God said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bless you and I will make you nations and I will make your offspring great. And Abraham was considered righteous and he followed God. And Abraham had a child. Abraham had Isaac. Isaac had a child, Jacob. Jacob had a ton of children. And because of God, through the promises of Abraham, we have these words today. Our life has changed. Jesus Christ came as a descendant through Abraham in the human form, fulfilling the promises that God made into Abraham, that you will have a king always sitting on the throne to David. He fulfilled those great things much in every way. We have a whole lot of our text. We have all of our texts to thank and give praise for those Jews who carried it faithfully. The Jewish system has a word. Their, their Bible is called the Tanakh. 
T-A-N-A-K. The A's are small and the T's are the large. And so it means this. It means, one, it means the law. When you have the law, and then you have the prophets, and then you have the writings. And so their Bible, their Old Testament Bible, is, is a different, organized differently than ours. And so the law would be the first five books. The prophets would be everybody from maybe Isaiah and Jeremiah to Malachi, and they're combined into one unit. And then, then you have the writings, the Psalms and the Proverbs and the Song of Solomon, and you have the writings. And each one of them has something significant to say about the word. And so through the law in Exodus, watch what Moses was told by the God. He said, write down these words. For in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. What do we have to be thankful for? We have to be thankful for the fact that Moses wrote down those words. Next, what do we have to be thankful for? We have the prophets. The prophets. Isaiah is a prophet, I thought of. And he says this. God, speaking to Isaiah, he says, Go and write on a tablet for them. Inscribe it on a scroll. For the days will come that it may be an everlasting witness. And so he, God, told Isaiah to write this down so that we could always have track of it. If you read the rest of that chapter in 30, it's kind of bad news for the Jewish people because they were being disobedient. But but it is God wanted it written. God wanted it preserved. And the third one is through the writings of the Psalms. If you were to read Psalm 119, and maybe you want to do it this week, I think I write. And every verse in Psalm 119, I haven't read the whole Psalm for a bit, but every verse reflects a, a word about the writings. It could call it the covenant, it could call it the, the word, it can call it the law, but everything refers back to the writings of God. And so I like this verse, how can a young person keep their way pure? How can an old person stay on the path of purity? By living what? According to your word. I seek you with all of my heart. Do not let me stand away from what? Your commands, the commands that Moses were told to write down. I have hidden your word in my heart. Why? That I might not sin against you. We have all of those things to thank the Jewish people for giving us. Some were unfaithful. What if some of the Jewish people were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Absolutely not. So, so in other words, in other words, listen to the logic. If, if this person is unfaithful, if partner A is unfaithful, does that make partner B unfaithful? No. Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? If I am unfaithful, does that make God less faithful? No. You guys got it? You guys tracking? Okay. Not at all. Let God be true and everyone a liar, as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. But unrighteousness brings God's righteousness more clearly. What shall we say? In other words, if, if I do wrong, and you can truly see that I'm wrong, because now you've got something to compare God's right to my wrongness, hey, isn't that all the better? Isn't God even seen better in light of my yuckiness? So if I am a mass murderer, doesn't that make me, you, even better? No. What shall we say then? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? How could God judge the world? But one more argument. Well, some might argue if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned? Do you catch the, the, the waves of, of, come on, man, you're kidding me. You're, you're a sinner, and because you're a sinner, therefore God is holy, and so you can continue sinning so that, so that this holy God can look even holier. 
How many of you want to be married to one of those people? Okay, let's put this in backwards order, okay? You're married to somebody who's unfaithful. If your partner is unfaithful, that, and you're faithful, therefore you look even all the better, right? You don't ever have to condemn the unfaithful partner, right? Okay, what about if your partner, your partner is now unrighteous? And the more unrighteous they get, the better you look, therefore you never want to condemn your partner's unrighteousness. Is that making sense? No, how about this? And all they do is tell lies, and, and you don't tell any lies, and therefore you look all the better, and they look more like a scum, therefore your marriage is perfect. Right? That's what their argument was about God. If, if I'm unrighteous, I'm untruthful, if I'm a liar, then, then God is, he can't judge me because he looks even better because I am here. I found three great characteristics of God in this passage that I think that will be application for us as we get ready to close. Residing faithfully in God's character. That's the last one. Reside in his faithfulness. Trust in his faithfulness. Because God is faithful, we need to be faithful. 2 Timothy 2.13 says, If we are faithful, for he cannot deny himself. It doesn't matter how faithless we are, God is always faithful. God is faithful in multiple ways, church. God is faithful to always be there whenever you need him. It doesn't matter where you are at, when you're there, God is always, always, always going to be there for you. I remember the first time I was taught that I could pray anywhere, any time of day. This is years ago. I was working with a Christian man, and, and the Christian man was driving his truck. And, you know, I had been raised in a church where you, you pray in the church, and that's kind of the limit to where you pray. You pray in a church, and if you want to seek God in the church. And so I was working at a Christian organization, and, and at that time, my boss, Frank, he saw some guy, and he pulled over, and he, he gave him help. And Frank said something that, you know, we do often now, but I didn't think much about, uh, really turned my world, is Frank stopped, and he prayed with that guy. Right then and there, Frank had the audacity to believe that God would hear him outside of the church. Isn't that crazy? That... that, that, that and Frank wasn't a pastor, so Frank had the audacity to believe that God could, heal, could hear him, a normal, ordinary, working guy, just ministering to somebody who needed help. See, God is faithful. There's never an opportunity to in the presence of him, and you want to pray, you can pray. He will always be there. Number two, God is righteous. God is righteous. Psalm 145 says, The Lord is righteous in all of his ways and his faithfulness in all that he does. Sometimes we don't understand at church when the sea billows roll, right, Javon? We don't understand why is God allowing me in this storm? I want my life to be a placid lake. You know the problem with a placid lake? You can put your sails up all day long. If the wind doesn't blow, you're kind of stuck. In other words, church, sometimes you need turbulence in your life in order to the wind pushing at you, pushing against you, so you can tack one way or the other. But you don't want perfectly calm seas. That's a disaster as a sailing ship. People have died in the equatorial ranges where, where water is just placid and there's no wind to blow the ship. And we think that's the most amount of fun. That's where we want to be. And God says, no, sometimes I want you in the storms because that moves you in the direction I want to get you. God is always righteous. Trust him in the storms of your life. Trust him 
that those storms that he brings into your life are storms to get you to where he wants you to go. See, righteousness of God could be succinctly stated that all that God is, all that he commands, he demands, and all that he approves of, and all that he provides is in Christ. The righteousness that we have is in Christ. And number three, truthful. God is truthful. Revelation, at the end of the book of Revelation, John is spoken to by that angel. And the angel says to John, these words are trustworthy and true. These words are trustworthy and true because they were spoken of by God. God is trustworthy and God is true. So God is faithful, God is righteous, and God is truthful. And this is our application. In chapter 3, through three verses 8, because God is faithful, we need to live faithfully. May God's name never be blasphemed because anybody in this church, because anybody in this church is living a way contrary, contrary. And so the world is watching you and the world says, who is that? I, don't, I can't believe in their God because they say one thing and yet do another. Church of Jesus Christ. If there are issues in your life into which you need to repent of, you need to say, I, I, I go to church and yet I am doing such and such, change your life. May your life reflect the true love that you have. Because God is righteous, we need to be righteous. And because God is truthful, we need to be truthful. So I pray this morning that as God speaks to you and you go, yeah, my neighbors, my family, my friends, they hear me say one thing about God and they see me live the same thing. I'm living in the integrity of truth that I know it. I'm not perfect. I mess up. But man, man, I, I'm, I'm okay. With that, let's pray. Lord, thank you for this morning. Lord, I pray that if there's been any amount of conviction that has come into this room, if there are people whose lives aren't reflecting your truth. The saying that they're going to church, the saying that they're living in a way, Lord, that, that is pleasing to you in church, and yet, Lord, they leave the church, and they live and they speak, and their language is salty, they're, they're, the stuff that they watch is filled with hate, the stuff they listen to, Lord, does not honor you and does not reflect you. Lightning thunders, y'all better repent. <laughs> I don't know what God is saying, but he's echoing my prayer right now. <laughs> yeah, all right. Barbecue's inside. <laughs> okay, I'll go back to prayer. That was awesome. <laughs> Lord Jesus, thank you for that moment to remind us that you are in control. And the storms and the winds and the rains, Lord, we're just grateful for. So I pray, Lord, that as your voice echoes in the valley, that we may see your creation, we may know that you live, and Lord, we may take seriously your word to reflect our, to reflect who you are to those we encounter.